Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, July the 19th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. 2023 seems increasingly likely to be the hottest year in the history of planet Earth, certainly since records began. As we record this today across the planet from the Mediterranean to the Persian Gulf to southern China to the southern states of the United States, people are struggling with unprecedented and sometimes life-threatening temperatures. I'm joined by our Europe correspondent, Naomi O'Leary, and we want to discuss what's currently happening at a political level with environmental legislation to mitigate some of this. But first of all, Naomi, how bad is it at the moment? Well, we've seen record-breaking temperatures in the last couple of days in a number of places in Europe, with Catalonia recording 45 degrees, Rome smashing through its previous record, um, hitting close to 42 degrees. The previous record was set last summer. And that's part of a trend that we're seeing where the rate at which these records are being smashed is getting more and more intense. So this comes right after the hottest week on record was recorded at the start of July. And that came on the back of the hottest June on record. So we just keep hitting these new records with, you know, the heat waves and the general extremes of weather intensifying. We also saw extreme monsoon rains in Asia, which killed hundreds of people um, in places like India and Pakistan. So, you know, what the climate scientists are saying is that what's happening here is we're having a base level of climate change with average temperatures significantly above what they would have been in the pre-industrial age. And then on top of that, that's being exacerbated by a new planetary warming cycle called El Nino, which began to kick in just recently. So that's you know expected to sort of compound the underlying climate change to make for these records to continue to be broken, record heat, and also the knock-on effects of record heat, which is you know, it fuels more extreme weather because it causes odd weather systems to form on the sea and things like that. So what used to be exceptional is now in some cases becoming the norm. As you say, El Nino is, is a contributory factor. And that, as I understand it, is a cycle that when it begins, it is a cycle of three, three or four years or something like that. But well beyond El Nino, we really are starting to see really significant changes. I see people over the last week, for example, talking about the Saharification of Southern Europe as the temperatures Mm -hmm. which we used to associate with inland Northern Africa start to become the norm in places like uh, Southern and inland Spain. It's a real concern because when you get temperatures as high as this, it has knock-on effects. So you've seen the wildfires that have broken out all around Athens and Greece, where they're struggling to keep them under control and people have fled their homes. There's also been wildfires in the Swiss Alps on the island of La Palma. So you have feedback effects where, you know, forests burn and that in turn releases more carbon and causes more destruction. And also, like, if you look at just some of the measurements, I looked at the sea temperatures and off the coast of Sicily, the temperature of the sea was about 30 degrees those kind of temperatures have really serious impacts on fish populations and on ecosystems. And so you have these these knock-on effects of kind of the worst things get 
the worst things get. This is coming after Antarctic sea ice levels were already recorded at their lowest level ever. And within Europe, because the temperatures were so high, only the very, very, very top of Mont Blanc was expected to remain below freezing. Usually much of the slopes of Mont Blanc would be below freezing. So that kind of signals more potential disruption of the collapse of glaciers and so on. So it's quite serious. And like you say, it's part of a global trend where we have simultaneous heat waves going on in China and the United States. And if you look at the the map, it's just like a band of heat around the earth. And there's really no relief because the temperatures, part of the reason why it is quite dangerous for human health is that the temperatures don't really fall that much at night. So in lots of parts of Europe, temperatures are remaining above 30 degrees at night. So there's really no relief and that's very stressful on the human body. It's particularly dangerous for older people, young infants and people who are, have illnesses already. And that's led to you know, a number of health warnings, red alert warnings in 16 different Italian cities, for example. But it's also, you know, it can be a danger to to anybody. We've had lots of people collapsing at work and having to be brought to hospital and a number of deaths in, in European cities. And a study that came out assessing the summer of 2022 uh, suggested that based on mortality statistics, and when you correlate that to temperature spikes, there were about 60,000 deaths due to extreme heat or excessive heat in the summer of 2022. So we would expect this summer to be worse than that. So the human impacts are really very significant. And those spikes in mortality, of course, are driven largely by older people, vulnerable people, and indeed poorer people who don't have access to shelter or indeed air conditioning. Mm -hmm. That's right. And I think, you know, the concern is that um, because of the feedback effects that I mentioned, it's getting the window for the world to achieve the aim of keeping global warming below 1.5 degrees compared to pre-industrial levels, that's getting more and more difficult to imagine because it becomes harder and harder to to control. The reason that um, the nations of the world agreed to try to limit climate change to 1.5 degrees in in the Paris Agreement of 2015 is because beyond that, you get worse and worse extreme damage and cost to ecosystems and human lives with the bleaching of coral reefs and the potential for the knock-on effects to kind of spiral out of control. So it really is bringing it home. And I spoke to the Prime Minister of St. Vincent and the Grenadines yesterday. That's a small Caribbean island. And he was in Brussels for a big summit of Latin American and Caribbean leaders with the EU. And I caught him on the sidelines. Places like St. Vincent and the Grenadines have been campaigning on climate change for many years because they felt the effects of it earlier than other places with disruption in their fishing and farming and big hurricanes and things like that. And they're also menaced by sea level rise. So I spoke to him about this issue and he told me that, you know, from his point of view, the impacts are finally coming home to roost. But what is happening now with all these extremely hot days and the fires and it's coming home directly in the citadels of the developed countries. Ordinary people are saying, Jesus, what these people have been talking about all the time. This is true. This is real. This is happening. And what's being faced by people in St. Vincent and the Grenadines is, is, is more extreme, ultimately, because it, you know, it could be the disappearance of their, of, of their actual country. But I do wonder, as, as, we, as we look at all these news stories this week, whether what you might call the more first world problem end of this, the, the prosperous um, states of the EU or the United States being faced with these realities. I mean, is that 
likely to have any real impact on political decisions that might be made. I wonder, for example, I mean, you and I are both in northern European cities where the temperature remains relatively temperate. Are people talking about not being able to go for their traditional holidays to the Mediterranean anymore? Are they generally concerned about what's happening to climate in in the places where they live or, or where they go on holiday? I know that in Ireland and in the UK, this has been reported mostly as a story about holidays. And I do think that that is a little bit of a disconnect with how it's seen on the continent. Even from Brussels, I think it's a little bit more immediate that, you know, what we're talking about is potentially lethal for people and people are having to flee their homes because of wildfires. I don't think it's seen so much as a story about holidays, but that, you know, I could be wrong. But you're right to say that nevertheless even as this is happening, in politics, there's actually a growing pushback against some of the legislation that's designed to curtail this kind of climate change. So the EU had a huge legislative program, sort of led by the European Commission, particularly Ursula von der Leyen, the president, called the European Green Deal. And it was, you know, a number of huge, very ambitious files to try to essentially meet the international commitments that the EU has already made to achieve climate neutrality and drastically cut emissions by 2030. And it involved things like phasing out the the era of the combustion engine car in favour of electric vehicles, um, all sorts of packages to do with uh, pesticides, everything from, you know, reducing the impact of farming to really, it really goes right across the economy and everything you can think of. A number of those files have already been passed, but there's still a lot to do. And there's a kind of six month, roughly a six month window for that legislation to actually be secured in the EU because we're facing elections in 2024. So the time will basically run out to conclude those legislative files. And as that final stretch comes into view, the European Union member state governments, the national governments are kind of turning against the idea of pushing the rest of it through, with especially the centre-right calling for a legislative pause, basically for no more legislation like this to be brought in for the rest of the term. So they want to slow it down. And there's this burgeoning sort of political rebellion going on behind the scenes. So let's look at how that plays out in in real political terms. I mean, the the most obvious one is 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 some legislation that's been in the news a lot lately over the last three or four weeks, and that's the uh, the Nature Restoration Bill. Can you tell me what that is, what it aims to do, and what's been happening with it? The Nature Restoration Law is a key plank of the European Green Deal legislation, and the idea behind it is to restore nature to reverse the dramatic collapse in biodiversity in wildlife populations um, that we've seen in recent decades with, you know, the population of certain animals having collapse in insect populations, bird populations and so on. And the idea behind it is that's essential for future viability of things like farming and food production. And it's also really essential to curb climate change because things like forests, wetlands, peatlands, are sinks for carbon. They contain loads of carbon. If they're in a sort of healthy natural state, they would hold a lot of carbon that might otherwise be leaking out into the atmosphere. So the idea behind this law was to set up a big program for substantial parts of the EU to restore areas of nature. This would typically be nature reserves that are already 
technically protected but are in a really bad state, they would mean to be restored. Things like uh, allowing rivers to flow again, rivers that have been blocked up, um, re-wetting wetlands, peatlands and so on. It's very different depending on what landscape you have because obviously the you know the environment of Europe is very diverse but each country in the European Union would have to come up with an, a particular national plan for how they plan to do this and how to reach an overall um, European target of restoring nature as, as part of this plan. This is a complex subject and there are a lot of contributory factors to the loss of biodiversity but I think it's fair to say isn't it that that the single most important contributory factor is the development of intensive agriculture across European countries. And there is unavoidably a tension between agriculture, which has always been a particularly powerful political force in EU politics, and some of these measures. I think that's certainly something that would be debated. Don't forget, we're also talking about the seas as well. So it's not just land. Um, but yes, I don't think anyone would contest that intensive agriculture has really transformed landscapes across the European continent. And that's been incentivized by one of the biggest items in the EU budget, which is called the Common Agricultural Policy, which offers subsidies to farmers that's based on how much territory by square metre they are farming and cultivating, giving an incentive, arguably, for them to do things like get rid of trees and and remove features of the landscape, which would usually be a refuge for wildlife and biodiversity. So it's not the beginning of efforts to try to reform that. There's been successive sort of attempts to do that. And each time it's been extremely controversial because farmers are absolutely crucial to producing the food that we all rely on at an affordable level. And they feel that they've been sort of unfairly singled out to carry the burden of too much adaptation to climate change and that they're being asked to do too much and their margins are already too low. That's basically the argument. But yeah, the nature restoration law did become a big fight between green groups, pro-green groups um, and a lot of farming lobbies which had doubts about it. But it, it was kind of developed in an interesting way because a lot of scientists and a lot of even large corporations like Unilever, Nestle and even IKEA came out in favour of the nature restoration law by saying it's not the case that restoring nature will be a threat to food security. It's actually the opposite because we need things like pollinators, we need bees, soils and water in order to grow food. So this is actually essential for the future viability of farming. There was two different perspectives on it and the centre-right um, in the European Parliament really pushed that this was a threat to rural communities, whereas you know the other groups who were in favour argued exactly the opposite, that this was something that you know would help rural communities and would restore the natural resources they rely on and provide new opportunities for things like carbon farming and sustainable tourism and so on. So when you say the centre-right, essentially you mean, first and foremost, the European People's Party, which is the traditional, very large party that, that generally is, a, in a, is an assembly of what we would broadly describe as Christian democratic centre-right parties in, uh, in countries across Europe. And it can be difficult to do things uh, in Europe without the support of the European People's Party, can't it? And it's been sort of contorting itself a bit over this legislation over the last while. I mean, first of all, we should say that it's, that it's already been amended and some would say watered down very significantly. Yeah, well, I can tell you the story of what happened there. So the European People's Party, as you say, it's the big centre-right group
grouping. It's the largest force in the European Parliament, although its power has been dwindling in recent years and it's competing increasingly with the far right. It includes Fine Gael. Fine Gael is one of its member parties. And negotiations on this nature restoration law had been proceeding more or less as normal. The way that laws are made in the European Parliament is they go through various committee stages and they're debated by MEPs who, you know, follow that particular specialty and they check, you know, every detail and every sentence and every line in the legislation in a a sort of slow grinding process that ultimately comes up with one consensus position that the European Parliament as a whole can back with a majority of its MEPs um, and that's necessary in order for any legislation to pass. So during this process, it went through a number of committees, agriculture, environment, and so on. And at a certain point, the European People's Party decided to just go to war on this legislation. It was led by the president of the European People's Party, Manfred Weber. They decided to pull out of all negotiations on the bill, and Manfred Weber whipped MEPs in those committees to vote against it. So this meant even going as far as replacing MEPs on the committee with other substitute members at times for votes to ensure that the law did not pass. So it suffered a series of defeats um, in the Environment Committee and in the Agricultural Committee and so on, which really politically damaged the bill. But they didn't succeed in killing it outright. They they tried. They put in an amendment, which is like an, a rejection amendment, and it would be Essentially, you know, we vote to reject this law and the commission has to withdraw it. And that would have pretty much killed it. Uh, but that didn't pass. They didn't succeed in doing that. So ultimately, it went ahead to a vote of all the 705 MEPs of the whole plenary. And that was held just recently. And this was the big showdown for this law, you know. And the European People's Party, led by Manfred Weber, tried to do the same thing. They put forward a vote on should this be rejected outright? And it failed. Very narrowly, there were 12 votes in the difference. So that meant that the nature restoration law survived and went to amendments. We can talk a little bit about those amendments and the shape that it ended up in. But what's interesting from an Irish perspective is that Irish MEPs were crucial to the nature restoration law surviving. And that's primarily because the five Fine Gael MEPs rebelled against their political group and decided to um, support the continuation of the law. They didn't vote in favour of rejecting it outright. They voted on the other side. And they were joined by two Fianna Fáil MEPs. Some of Fianna Fáil's group, Renew, uh, did back the rejection. So Fianna Fáil, you know, arguably could have gone two ways because some of their group did split on the other side. So every single Irish MEP voted to support the continuation of this bill in the end. And, you know, speaking to officials and, and people around them and so on, they just don't think that the public mood was there for a rejection of this bill. The elections are coming and, you know, they, I think they were they were afraid of, the, of a public backlash if they had voted to reject the bill. Um, and they received a lot of correspondence on it, apparently. They'd been emailed by loads of citizens and people who were concerned about it. And there was a sense that there was a lot of public attention on it. Okay, that's very interesting. There's another angle on it. Our our columnist Jared Howland um, laid this out yesterday, just to say that the the Parliament vote um, was uh, 324 to 312. I think is that right? That's right. Yeah. So you know, seven votes would have made all the difference. The five uh, Fine Gaelers and the two others. And uh, Jared suggests that um, because a vote was forced in the dull on this issue, uh, what was called in the dull, it was forced in the dull at the instigation 
that a vote should take place by Malcolm Noonan, a uh, Green uh, junior minister, that the parties here were kind of, were in a way forced to... Um, uh, put their money where their mouth is mm-hmm. and say where they stood on this mm-hmm. in in terms of local politics. And that might have had some impact then on what happened at the European level. Can you shed any light on that? Does that ring true to you at all? Yeah, I can definitely see that. And also, it's worth bearing in mind that when this vote took place, right, the European member states, so the, the European Council, the 27 countries, they'd already backed the bill. They had already like agreed themselves to go ahead with this. It just needed a qualified majority of them to support it, and they did, including Ireland. Um, so, you know, the, there was this really weird topsy-turvy situation where the European Parliament, which usually pushes for more progressive legislation, was the one in this case which was sort of arguing for, you know, to, to strip out nature protections and so on. And the European Council, which is usually sort of more sceptical and sort of hard-headed about these things, was actually saying, no, we're okay with this nature restoration bill. So what was going on there then? Is this? Does, you mentioned Manfred Weber earlier. I mean, I know it's not down to one single individual, but he is a very singular individual. He's very interesting. He's another German politician like Ursula von der Leyen. In fact, I think he was in the mix for Ursula von der Leyen's job before she got mm-hmm. it, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, you say it's not down to one individual, but Manfred Weber very much personally led the campaign against the nature restoration law. Um, this was very much his project. The European elections are coming, as I mentioned, and his centre-right group are afraid of losing votes to the hard right. They were basically scared by the Dutch regional elections that happened earlier this year because a a farmer's party surged from nothing to becoming the largest group in the Senate um, and on the back of a sort of a rebellion movement against measures to reduce the number of livestock in the Netherlands to reduce um, nitrogen emissions, which have been way over what they should have been for ages. So this success of the farmers' movement in the Netherlands really spooked the centre-right, particularly in Germany. And they were afraid of they're afraid of uh, being eclipsed by something like that and losing their influence in the in the elections uh, next year. They've had a very dominant power for a long time and they're used to getting top positions like, you know, the president of the European Commission, um, the European elections decide all of that. Uh, So they're trying to hold on to power. And there is history there as well. You point out that Manfred Weber, he was overlooked for the position of Ursula von der Leyen. They're from the same party. They're both German. Um, They're from the, the European People's Party. And, you know, he was the face of the European People's Party campaign in the last elections. And technically, you know, because it emerged as the largest party, there's a sort of informal agreement that that person should be president of the European Commission. But Weber, as a candidate, did not convince anybody, essentially. And he was overlooked and rejected by the European Union member states. And they picked Ursula von der Leyen instead. And the European Green Deal is her baby. So, yeah, some people saw a little bit of a revenge in this uh, this very, like, determined campaign by Weber to kill the European Green Deal. But it's not just him. Um, and it's it's you could see from the way that he was campaigning that European People's Party was borrowing some of the anti-green rhetoric that has worked for the hard right and for sort of anti-green movements. A fair bit of scaremongering about what the nat- was in the nature restoration law. Um, but there is also genuine frustration about the approach of the European Commission as well, um, to give 
you know, the critics, they're, they're due. Ursula von der Leyen is accused of pushing things through too quickly. This is a commission that is used to dealing with crises, whether it's, um, you know, the COVID-19 or the war in Ukraine. And so she's developed systems of introducing legislation which are a bit different from commissions of the past. And there's a lot less um, impact assessment going on. Um, and so there's, there's a feeling, not just among MEPs, but particularly among the member states, that a lot of legislation is kind of being pushed at them very rapidly. And they don't know what's the combined effect of this legislation and has the proper assessment been done about all of its impact. So that, that is a genuine concern, uh, which isn't just sort of uh, political campaigning. There's a lot in that, some of which I'd like to unpick. We're going to take a quick break first, just to remind our listeners that if you are not already a subscriber to the Irish Times, please rush to irishtimes.com straight away and you can do so at irishtimes.com slash subscribe. So Naomi, you were talking before the break about, in a way, I suppose, the internal processes of making legislation. I'm interested that you were talking about Ursula van der Leyen maybe holding on to some of those COVID-era crisis, get the job done quicker kind of approaches. I suppose you could see that as an, as an attempt to assert greater agency within the within the mix of powers in, in the EU. Is, is it seen by that, like that, as a kind of a power grab to some extent? Yeah, I mean, she has transformed the position of European Commission president. It's become a lot more presidential under her. I think she's a lot more name recognition of presidents that have come before her. And part of that is due to how she's put her name on certain legislation or certain initiatives. And she has really driven through the evolution of the EU. So an example would be, you know, joint procurement of vaccines. She very much owned that politically. Um, but this has also come with um, internal control with the way that new files and new developments are pushed through in the European Commission. She keeps a very tight circle around her. And rather than legislation coming from the sort of ministries up, it's a little bit top down. At least this is what I'm hearing from officials and diplomats. So there's advantages in a way, because if you do have urgency and you have crises to address, whether it's, you know, the gas crisis the energy crisis, which the EU quite successfully managed um, to head off, or, or COVID-19, this is an advantage. Um, but it also comes with disadvantages because sometimes um, problems aren't caught and not everybody is brought on board. So you can have a backlash because people think that things are being forced on them. And that was something that you heard a lot from MEPs who were opposed to nature restoration law. They thought the commission had mishandled it and pushed it forward too much. And there's politics going on here in the background as well. The head of the, the, the commissioner who's in charge of the Green Deal, Franz Timmermans, is from the socialist group. He's, you know, an, sort of an enemy of the centre-right and they, they kind of love to bash him politically. And the Spanish uh, election also is a background to all of this. The, the fights about the nature restoration law and about green policy generally took on a, an interesting twist because the head of the socialists in the European Parliament is Spanish. And Weber himself also sort of made it about the Spanish election in the way. He accused Franz Timmermans of campaigning for Pedro Sanchez, who is the, the centre-left um, prime minister of Spain, who's currently battling an election. He faces an election on Sunday um, in which he may lose out to the centre-right, to an EPP group, to a candidate who's very close to Weber. Um, so, yeah, there's layers going on here. 
just to turn back to the EPP, because as you say, it is it is Europe's largest party. We were having a chat here on last Friday's podcast, and I think Pat Leahy mentioned that there's a, there's been a, a swing to the right in um, several European elections over the last while. The victory of the Brothers uh, of Italy party, the um, the rise of the of of um, far right parties like the Sweden Democrats, uh, the success of to some extent of the True Finns, um, and Vox in Spain, as you mentioned, with the elections coming up this this weekend. So the the way I see it is, yes, there may be a tilt towards the right, but it's not necessarily a tilt towards the traditional right, is it? And there's a threat within that to the parties that make up the EPP. Yeah, exactly. So the way they see it is, is if you're a centre-right sort of uh, one of the traditional parties, let's say, and you're usually a little bit cautious on green things, but you're open to them. You, you Suddenly you're concerned that if you appear too green, then you will lose your seat to someone who will make any environmental legislation impossible because they don't believe in climate change or, you know, they they have a completely opposed position to any green legislation. So that's their that's their position. That's what's driving this kind of attack on the green legislation. But what we've seen in a number of elections is it's not risk free to try to sort of um, adopt the the rhetoric of your competitor. Um, we saw this in prior uh, elections. This sort of stuff usually played out around migration, and some mainstream political parties ended up sort of adopting and echoing the anti-migrant rhetoric of their new harder right competitors and what can happen in many cases is that you just get eclipsed because um, you alienate your base um, and the hardline voters just vote for the hardline parties anyway so it's it's not risk-free but this was a prelude to the European elections and it's um, it's an example of the centre-right um, seeing how it can position itself to retain the dominant power that it has had and that might include um, doing some sort of agreements, um, coalition agreements or otherwise with the hard right. I think that's what they see coming down the road. It's important to note that the rise of the hard right in different European countries, it's usually um, part of the fragmentation of the political landscape. So you also see groups like the Greens and various left groups growing as well. Um, but you have often new um, hard right movements which are quite um, politically clever and are able to, they're, although they're a minority, get quite a, a good influence over the mainstream parties of power. And they end up in some sort of governing arrangement where they're able to set some of the agenda. It's just Italy really where we've seen one of those parties, the Brother of Italy, Brothers of Italy, actually come to lead the government. Um, and when, it's interesting to note, the Brothers of Italy uh, took the lead in the Italian government, they also significantly moderated their position. So they became a bit more like a centre-right traditional party, um, at least, you know, to, to a certain extent. And we may see we may see some of that possibly in Spain because it looks the most likely outcome of the election at the weekend looks like a, a minority uh, PP, which is the, the centre-right party government supported by or in coalition with, probably supported by, um, by the, the far-right Fox party. It really depends on the outcome of the election. But yeah, the polls suggest that Pedro Sanchez, the centre-left, um, are lagging behind the centre-right, but the centre-right may not have enough um, seats to govern on its own and may need to rely on the hard-right box to rule. Now, this has really significant potential outcomes um, for the EU and for the Green Deal. Why is that? Because Spain currently has the EU presidency, 
the job of the presidency is to lead negotiations on all the legislative files. So it's literally, it'll be Spanish ministers who are chairing all of the meetings for the next six months until December. Um, and the presidency sets the priorities, they set the agendas, they set the pace of negotiations. And the candidate, um, Alberto Núñez Fejo, has said that he's very close to Weber and he is also very close to the demand of the centre-right EPP for a halt, a freeze to all new Green Deal legislation. So it's completely conceivable that if the centre-right come to power in Spain, we could see a go slow on any further green legislation coming in. Um, so really the, the vote that's coming on Sunday in Spain will, to a significant extent, probably determine um, the the course of the EU's environmental legislation for the next six months. Because the reality is that once we get to the end of that six months and once we get into next year, into 2024, that's an election year. And from a, mm-hmm. from a, from a political point of view, things grind to a halt until, until we know the new configuration uh, in the second half of the year. Yeah, realistically, we only have until about February or maybe March to pass new EU legislation before things more or less break up for those um, elections. And the this Spanish election will determine whether, you know, for most of that time, negotiations are being led by a party which wants to pass environmental legislation as quick as possible and believes in the nature restoration law and so on, or one that's quite sceptical. Vox has said that Spain should pull out of the Paris Climate Accords, for example. Um, it also said that the entire, in its manifesto, that the entire Green Deal should be reassessed um, and um, so it's quite clear that they they don't want any legislation, any more green legislation, and they actually are opposed to some of the existing legislation that's been passed. Um, a lot will depend on how much influence they end up over the PP, over the centre-right party, which is expected to come first in the election, although who knows what will actually happen on the day. I mean, you mentioned the fragmentation of European politics, both to left and to right, and uh, my simplistic idea of the way the EU has worked for a very long time is that its its twin drivers, its twin engines have been the large centre-right and centre-left parties, essentially Christian Democrats and Social Democrats in the form of the EPP and and, and the Socialists. And both have been getting chipped away at um, re- respectively. And if you have a more fragmented, possibly more incoherent political configuration into the future. And you also have the arrival, perhaps, of outright climate denialism, which we haven't really seen as a significant political force before. That that doesn't bode well for a coherent approach to, to climate issues over the next few years, does it? Yeah, I mean, all I can say really is we'll see. Because as I say... Although you have this, you have this polarization. You have the growth of hard right groups and potentially anti-climate politics getting a foothold in different countries. Um, at the same time as that, you know, it also has become, I would say, completely accepted in the mainstream that climate change is real and that legislation needs to be passed to try to stop it from getting so out of control that it, you know, that it will have devastating impacts on how we live our lives. Um, so that's pretty much accepted. The the targets are adopted and the the legislation is in course to deal with it. I think where the fights are taking place is, you know, how to how to particularly exempt different sectors from the impact on them or to slow down the pace that particular sectors, particular industries have to um, 
have to change. So it'll be lots of sort of lobbies and interest groups trying to say, no, ask the other guy to do it. You know, don't ask me. Um, that's where a lot of this will ultimately come down to. You know, of course, green policies, um, green parties uh, have also become a significant uh, force in their own right, including in the European Parliament. Um, and a lot of the the more centrist parties have, you know, just accepted the science on climate change and accepted um, that things that things need to change. But yeah, you're, you're right that there's there is significant risk there. Um, and we are moving away, I think, from a political configuration in the European Union that um, that was, like you say, a bit more simple, a bit like a huge dominant centre-right bloc, which had parties governing in a huge swathe of different European countries and was really able to drive the agenda. And then a sort of smaller but still very dominant centre-left bloc. It, it has definitely become more complex and there's a lot of talk about you know, what will this mean for the next election and whether the centre-right in particular will start doing deals with the hard right. Um, but I think it's also worth mentioning what ultimately happened with the nature restoration law. So it survived the rejection vote. It didn't get rejected outright. But because of what happened, because the centre-right had taken this position, the effect has been that the nature restoration law is really gutted. Like it's very, very much a shell of what was initially proposed. Usually the European Council can be relied on to do something like that to green legislation. But in this case, it was the... Um, the European Parliament, they mostly, like, there was like hundreds of amendments, so it's kind of difficult to go through all of them. But to sum it up, really, they made targets not binding. So making things voluntary basically means that it's just up up to governments, it's up to member states whether they want to do things or not. And, it, you know, ultimately, you can just make for a rather meaningless legislation. They also took out lots of specific things, like details like, you know, the leaving dead wood in forests, which is really essential for biodiversity. That was something they took out. There's loads of examples of things like that. But yeah, um, that that's what happened. The nature restoration law survived. Um, it's going now for its final round of negotiations. And that happens between the European Council, the Member States and the European Parliament. And I think you know, those supporters of the of the nature restoration law are hoping that some of the ambition can be built back into it at this point so that the final version actually means something um, and can do something. But it's also worth bearing in mind that, you know, it's also about how national electorates hold their governments to account. So if a, an EU law comes in and it has non-binding targets, what's determined, what may determine whether the government actually does anything or not is whether the electorate holds them to account and whether their their citizens say, but you said you would do this and you should. I mean, we're familiar in Ireland with the idea that governments can hide behind mandatory EU legislation and try and avoid criticism by the electorate on that. Presumably that, that pans out in other countries as well. Definitely. Um, yeah, Brussels can can play the role of, you know, the bad guy who's like forcing something in. But yeah, all of these things are very much um, negotiated. Uh, most of files require unanimity. And if if the, the governments are well, well aware that things come in um, and have a very significant role in shaping all of this. I mean, this is a global transnational crisis challenge, Naomi, and demands transnational transnational solutions, um, I suppose. And therefore, you know, hence the role of the EU. I mean, I do wonder, listening to what you say about it, you know, European elections traditionally are treated here in Ireland and, and probably elsewhere as, as 
the phrase is second order elections and it's it's unclear mm-hmm. you know how how much people engage with the real issues that would be decided in Brussels in 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 the European in the European Parliament but this is definitely one of those isn't it is there is there any chance that that um that the climate and environment could become a real issue in the elections in the European elections next year I think it could, yeah, definitely, um, because I think there's a number of different forces that want it to be, whether it's like more sceptical forces that, that want to sort of attack the European Green Deal or, or think there might be an electorate there to be attracted, or, or whether it's green groups. I think the reality is that like sometimes, you know, this stuff that is going on um, outside the borders of Ireland, you know, over on the continent is seen as sort of foreign affairs, but it's not foreign affairs. This is domestic um, I mean, this is legislation that will ultimately be enforced in Ireland. And this is Irish politics as much as it's French politics and Spanish politics and German politics that are going on. You know, a lot of our legislation, our lawmaking and our politics are actually taking place in the European continent because you're, we're in the European Union. And I think that that's probably overlooked more than it should be. But yeah, it would be, it would be definitely appropriate, I think, if the European elections in 2024, the People, you know, engaged with them, saw them as something that will determine uh, the future, uh, like shape the future of Ireland as well as the rest of the European continent. And uh, I think a lot of the, you know, certainly the the MEPs will be will be hoping for that too. Um, I think most most of the Irish MEPs are are going to run again. I think, but yeah, we'll 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 see the campaign really start. I think in in the next few months. Indeed, and that's a story for another day. But we leave it there. Naomi, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thanks. And that's it for today. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, our engineer is JJ Vernon. We'll be back with you with our wrap of the week very soon. But until then, thanks very much for listening.